You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience on this Thursday, last day of May. Almost half the year has gone by. This is your National Inspector General, not the FBI Inspector General. That is Michael Horowitz. A lot of people mistaken me for that. But, you know, every day I feel like I am the Inspector General of the policies, the politics that people are not focusing on, doing the job that not just the liberal media, but unfortunately even the conservative media. Um, they're focused on the Kardashianism. And speaking of Kim Kardashian, how about it, folks? We've gone from the party of Reagan and Jesse Helms to the party of Kim Kardashian on crime. We have now adopted Kim Kardashian's view of criminal justice. Very problematic. Um, today is going to be another episode of Meet the Candidates. But before we bring our guest on, I just want to flag two articles we have out. Uh, that I'll hopefully elaborate on either tomorrow or next week. Um, one is on this criminal justice issue. It's a truth bomb piece. It's almost 2,000 words um, where I just go through how this entire issue of jailbreak, especially on a federal level, is built on a lie, um, how we are literally uprooting all of Reagan's success on this issue, how the organizations pushing it are completely misguided and lying, downright lying on the issues. And then, you know, we have another piece on how Trump is being lied to by Kirsten Nielsen, Mark Short, a lot of the people in the White House over what leverage he has over the border. He doesn't need Congress for a number of things. He needs to follow the statute as written. I've talked about this a lot. Asylum, um, UACs. These are the call plays that conservative groups need to be making. And the president would actually agree on these issues. Um, sadly, they don't do it. They do the opposite. They focus on Kim Kardashianists and uh, you know whatever else is cool to fight about that has nothing to do with discernible policy outcomes. And then you know we get bad policy outcomes, not because Trump supports them. In fact, I mean, you know, on on both the border issue, he certainly agrees with us there. On the crime issue, he called for the death penalty for drug traffickers just a couple weeks ago. Um, but you know, they tell him, oh, it's prison reform, so he thinks it's something dealing with food um, or uh, the quality of the bedding and the, mess, the the rec hall in prisons. No, it's it's a retroactive release that will. Uh, caused the release of of thousands of hardened criminals, 40% into their sentence. And actually, um, I'm looking at one section 402 of this bill that might give the attorney general authority to unilaterally uh, basically allow almost anyone they deem as low level, which is very subjective, and they do not write a criterion into the bill – um, they could make them eligible for home confinement, not just at the back end, but the entirety of their sentence. This bill, the more I look at it, is very problematic. The more I speak to people in the Bureau of Prisons, but alas, they passed it without a CBO score, without anything, because this is what the cool kids in Washington are doing. Kim Kardashian is cool. Um, criminals have her voice. Who is going to speak for victims? I will speak for victims if no one else will, and that's what we're going to do. Um, 
what's the problem we have? What's the common denominator? <clears throat> that there's a huge opportunity that we're missing with Trump. Intuitively, he agrees with us on a lot of issues. You know, when you can get kind of the politics out of it, um, the personal stuff like Jared Kushner, you get him out of there. He agrees with us. Trump is telling conservatives, "I want to do what you want to do." Well, what do you want to do? Well, we talk about nonsense. We don't. Sometimes we actually echo the Soros talking points. We don't make the play calls for the president. He's not going to be more conservative than conservative groups. We need reinforcements. We need people that are actually going to promote our agenda. One of the things we talked about with this Meet the Candidate series, and we've we've talked about this for years on this program, how. It is so hard to defeat establishment Republicans in primaries. There's a lot of talk about doing it, but by my count, it has happened about five times over the last 20 years. Now, when I say that, I mean running to the right of a sitting establishment guy. Unfortunately, a number have won defeated incumbents like my buddy Tim Hulescamp running from the left. That's no big feat because you have all the industry support doing that. Um, but that it is very difficult, and we have failed to do that this year with the exception of one case, one man who didn't have support from, from a lot of these groups. He did it on his own. That is Mark Harris. Um, Mark Harris defeated Robert Pittenger in the Republican primary for North Carolina's 9th Congressional District, and I figured it would be important to bring him on for, for a number of reasons. Obviously, you know, as the only conservative to actually beat an incumbent. Um, I figured you guys would want to hear from him. But number two, he is also – he's a Baptist pastor who was the social conservative leader in the state who spearheaded the last successful marriage amendment. It passed in North Carolina with 61 percent despite being you know, outgunned, outfund, outfunded, outmanned by the other side. Um, and then you know, we just allowed the courts to take over, and the entire so-called conservative movement just gave up and doesn't believe in that anymore. And we're going to talk about that. And then also, I think North Carolina is a very important state. Um, as you know, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest is a friend of this program. We've had him on a number of times discussing our big issue, judicial supremacy, and what it's done to North Carolina. And we're going to get Mark's uh, take on that. So it is an honor to bring to the conservative conscience, hopefully not the last time, but the first time, Mark Harris. Hey, Mark, how you doing? I'm doing great, Daniel. How are you doing today? Well, I'm, I'm losing my voice from talking so much, so I'm glad to bring on some help here to help me co-host. Um, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm in a pretty bad mood, and you know, my audience knows me to be notorious for that. And um, it, It's very tough seeing even, even friends, even people in the Freedom Caucus getting overwhelmed by a certain narrative, lacking the resources, the staff to properly vet bills. Um, but let's, let's start just with the first question. How do you do it? You know that no one else has done this this cycle, really not last cycle either. This is the first time since Dave Bratt knocked off Eric Kanner. How did you successfully take out an incumbent? Well, Daniel, you know, um, I, I ran for this seat in 2016, um, actually. Uh, they had uh, redrawn the districts and congressional districts in North Carolina. And uh, when the districts were redrawn, I just genuinely felt uh, – um, a leading to step into that race. And so in 2016, there were three of us that ran. There was uh, the current uh, Congressman Robert Pittenger, who had served two terms at that time, and myself, and then a former county commissioner from one of the neighboring counties that got in, in the race. And I, I lost that race in 2016 by only 134 votes to Robert Pittenger at that time. So we knew that, that we had 
um, a real shot at, at being able to win this district. And uh, especially uh, had the guy that finished third not been in the race, uh, we felt like we could have pulled it off in 2016. And so that night after we lost by 134 votes, literally my, my wife and I looked at each other and we knew we had some big decisions ahead of us. And uh, we committed to each other to really pray for the period of a year about whether or not this was an arena that uh, we were being called to, um, to just really step away from everything that we had been doing and uh, put it all in to run for this seat. And after a year of, of doing that, we made the decision to get in the race. And and to be honest, um, there, were, there were a lot of variables, I think, that, that you could point to in this race. But I think that we really just stayed disciplined. We stayed focused on the issues and and we stayed focused on getting our message to the people. And I mean, it, it was raising money in the morning on the phones for hours. It was knocking on doors every afternoon for hours. It was going to GOP meetings up and down the district every evening, just about um, for the better part of about six, seven or hell, really probably about nine months from October uh, fully all the way until uh, until May. We were invested in that kind of way. And um, and then there was a big issue. And, and I don't have to tell you, the, uh, the issue that I think was a turning point in our race was that omnibus bill um, at, that uh, Mr. Pittenger voted for. And once he voted for that omnibus bill, uh, we, we drilled down on that. And we saw a shift begin to take place in this district that, um, that people were ready to say enough is enough. Wow. You know, one of the things I see when I look at this race just from the outside without, you know, following it that closely is money. Um, and not to take anything away from your victory because you were still outspent probably more than two to one. I know he had more than a million dollars in his war chest. But to me, right. it was, it really, my eyes popped out when I saw you raise, what, $500,000? Yeah, almost 550000 Almost 550000 5, To me, the, the death knell of every candidacy I see is that. You know, it's just this vicious cycle of irrele- irrelevancy that you can't raise money because no industry will touch you. Not that we want their money because it's kind of the corrupting right. influence. Um, no, no, I mean, no, nobody, even people in the district that sympathize, they're often scared because it's it's disclosed. Uh, I, I hear that from a lot of other candidates trying to do what you did. At best, you see they raise a hundred thousand dollars. That's like a milestone. Um, to me, this is. This is the thing. I mean, you got to have the ability to get your message out in a district. Now, you know, districts are 700, 750,000 people. Um, right. How do you do that? How did you? I mean, no one else has done this. Well, again, like you said, we were outspent more than two to one. But uh, how, and you're exactly right. I mean, we had more than 800 individuals that contributed to our campaign. And, and there were folks that, um, that I just spent hours on the phone. There is no substitute for just reaching out to people. And because I had run previously, I, cert- I had somewhat of a list from which to work of, of folks that knew me, uh, knew what I stood for, knew what I believed in. As you mentioned, the marriage amendment, uh, when I was helping spearhead that with other leaders here in North Carolina, obviously I uh, got a chance to know a lot of people. And so I really think that folks just understood uh, what we were doing. I was just personally reaching out to them and asking them to to help us in this vision. 
and and folks stepped up to the plate and that and that's one of the big challenges at least for conservatives and conservative evangelicals because so many folks are giving money to so many great causes they're giving to their churches they're giving to other charities they're giving to organizations sure. and and oftentimes they don't have money that they give to political campaigns and as a result of that a lot of conservatives come up short because they just don't have a base of people that are willing to believe and and give sacrificially to the campaigns. Sure. I mean, th- this is the mother's milk of, of politics. I mean, this is the problem we, we talk about here every day, not just on a candidate level, but even on an outside organization level. You, you take a look at what some uh, so-called conservative groups uh, suddenly stand for, and you just follow the money. And it's it's very sad. There, there is no money you know, at least at a core level in traditional values, law and order, sovereignty, um, you know, the proper balance between the judiciary and the other branches. There, there's no money in that. You know, there's no right. – and even in true free markets, there isn't much money. Um, it's cronyism, and, and that's and that's the problem. Um, and obviously having a proper foreign policy, there's really no money there. And it's, it's pretty impressive that, you know, you tried a couple times. I know we talked back when you ran for Senate. Um, and by golly, it would have been better had you won. But you know, we're we're stuck with that in the Senate, and uh, you know, it's it's a problem. And obviously, normally I'm a little bit more even keeled when we have primaries. But the primary is over. You are the nominee, and you know, hopefully, you will um, win the general election and and make it to Congress. And you know, I think it's important we all know, just understand what what you're up against. Um, you know, it was hard right. to beat an incumbent in the primary. I'm telling you, it's even harder to to be in Washington and actually just be a voice for those issues and not get swallowed up. I've had literally had people on the show. I've spoken to them for hours about all the strategies, how leadership lies to them about legislation, the leverage points they could use, and every time the shelf life of their uh, awesomeness gets shorter. One guy gets co-opted after six months, the next guy after four months. Do you have a plan going in of? What you want to accomplish, and when I say accomplish, I don't necessarily mean getting things passed because let's face it, we don't have the votes. Um, you know, we only have a few dozen conservatives at most. Uh, but to actually be a voice to this, to get to the president's ear, not get swallowed up, have the proper staff because I'm seeing staffing is a huge problem. Um, you know, members vote for very important bills and they don't know what's in them. Um, I'm, I'm talking about even conservative members, not just the omnibus, but you know, a lot of these bills you never hear about, um, where they make fundamental changes to very philosophically deep issues. And you know, have you thought about? I know you, you know, obviously you don't want to be presumptuous. You got to win the general election, but have you thought about the day after yet? Well, you know, you're you're right. We don't want to be presumptuous, and we we have our own challenge, obviously, going in because the uh, Democrats have targeted. This district, and uh, you have folks like Tom Steyer, who's running this uh, left-wing impeach movement, who's committed a uh, million dollars into North Carolina, five hundred thousand dollars to defeat Ted Budd, a solid conservative in the district next to mine, and then five hundred thousand to defeat me. So, and Act Blue, a group out of Massachusetts, is pouring money into uh, my opponent in this district. So. We're we're certainly not being presumptuous at all, but but I think in answer to your question, uh, yeah, we we've given some thought to to how we sort of we're gonna I don't know protect ourselves in some way, and and that is I think you've gotta you gotta know your core, 
And and to be honest with you, as we've gone into this election, this primary, one of the things that's been a bit refreshing is, you know, um, we've had no outside help. Now, we're needing outside help. We're needing help from every good conservative that's going to step up to the plate sure. because we, we just cannot afford to lose uh, the majority and see Nancy Pelosi uh, stepping back in as Speaker of the House. I mean, that, that would be absolutely disastrous. And so everybody is going to have to pull together to help us help us get there. But but I do think that, you know, keeping in mind your core, uh, understanding your district and understanding the people that live there that you represent. One of the things I've oftentimes said, Daniel, is, is one reason I got into this uh, to begin with, and in a lot of ways, is, is my dad being my hero. And uh, and one reason my dad's my hero is because he's the epitome of an overcomer. Um, he His mom died with cancer when he was six. His dad was an alcoholic, unable to take care of him, and he dropped him off at an aunt's house who couldn't raise a six-year-old boy and dropped him off at a, the Methodist Children's Home. And I'll be forever grateful to the United Methodist Church for raising my daddy. But when he, he graduated from high school and left the children's home, he went straight into World War II and he had been on uh, eight bombing raids successfully, and on November 2nd, 1944, took off for the ninth bombing raid and uh, take out some oil refineries in Eastern Europe. And on their way back, my dad's plane was shot down, and uh, nine men on that plane. Dad was a waste gunner on the plane, and uh, one man died on impact when they all bailed out. But my dad and seven others were immediately captured and spent the balance of the war in a Nazi prison camp. But I remember talking to my dad about uh, even stepping into this arena, having been a pastor for 30 years. And, and my dad just looked at me and said, well, son, just just please be careful. <laughs> and I said, seriously, dad, you would you would say to me, be careful after all you risked and all you went through. I said, dad, what made your generation and I genuinely believe this, Daniel, what made your generation the greatest generation was because you all managed to see America from that 30,000-foot view where everybody had to stand shoulder to shoulder and arm in arm and do what was best for America. And I said, Dad, we've lost that in our generation. I said, whenever crisis comes in our generation, first thing out of our mouth and first thing in our mind is, well, how's this going to affect me? Yep. And I said, you all in your generation, you all looked at what was best for America. And, and that's why I'm even in this race and in this arena, because I feel like that's what's missing in the halls of Congress. And I want to that's going to be foremost in my mind in everything I do is going to be what is best for the nation? What is best for for her people here in decisions that will be made? And when I see a twenty one trillion dollar debt, when I see our nation's borders just completely porous, when I see. Planned Parenthood continuing to be funded. When I see rising prices for uh, and for what we're seeing that Obamacare has bought us and our premiums for health insurance, when we see all of those things that are are really just wrong with America right now, we've got to have some folks that are willing to stand together. And listen, there are 44 at last count Republicans. That's just Republicans that are not coming back to the U.S. House of Representatives. And I don't think we need to lose sight of that because there's going to be an incoming class of freshman congressmen, and I hope to be among them, that if we can see some like-minded uh, men and women that will come together 
to tackle these issues that are serious issues for America, I think we're going to be on the edge of something great about turning our country around. You know, you really teed up a fastball for me, the way you presented something, because I'm going to ask you a question that I haven't asked anyone, and I think it's very appropriate given your background. It's, it is tearing my insides apart now. It's really bothering me. You, know, you talk about how the World War II generation, they had such moral clarity. It gets back to the whole the whole patent mentality. They understood good, good and bad. They understood right and wrong. They understood evil. They understood the problems with moral relativism. They, they, they weren't bothered by things that we are bothered by today. Um, you know, you also mentioned just in it, what you're talking about, how, how, you know, being a pastor, you find people get sucked in. And indeed, there are, you know, some former clergy that are in Congress that have gotten sucked in. And just to kind of put that together, there's a growing trend I'm seeing where. And this is reflected in the political organizations of all three major religions, uh, you know, Catholics, Protestants, and Jews, uh, that engage in political activism, where basically they've gotten tired or gotten scared and wary of fighting the homosexual agenda, which has gotten even worse. It's not even about that anymore. It's the transgenderism in the military. It's the courts mandating the most absurd things, and we can talk about that a little later. It's – um. You know, not just abortion on demand, but there's abortion chain migration. The courts are now creating a right for the world to turn America into a dumping ground, come here, unilaterally assert jurisdiction, and demand access to abortion. Same thing with transgenderism they're having from Mexico now. They're saying they're asylees to come here for sex change operations. And on issue after issue after issue after issue, I am seeing nobody, none of these well-funded social conservative groups stand for it at all. Um, I had Steve King from Iowa, congressman, hopefully he'll be your colleague. Um, he had amendments to the defense authorization bill to deal with this business of the courts. I mean, can you imagine telling the president you're not commander in chief and you have to bring in people that have a, such a high suicide rate and and pay for sex change operations? He had an amendment to deal with that. Not a single social conservative group brought it to the president's ear, the ones that have his ear. And in fact, what are they doing? Basically, it's become this. It's become – and it depends on the group, but you know where I'm headed with this. Bring in more Islamic immigrants, open borders. We have to be, we have to be nicer to criminals. Forget about the victim. Um, waterboarding terrorists. You see what I'm saying? All these things, and I'm not. You know, I wasn't a down the line Trump guy. I voted for Cruz in the primary, but th- but this is one thing where I feel Trump has consistently actually had a very proper moral compass on right and wrong as it relates to law and order, immigration, criminal justice, you know, terrorism. And I'm finding that, again, it's about that. They'll throw in AIDS in Africa because no one's going to fight you on that. I am very concerned that social conservatism – and I know I've gone long here, but I've been dying to ask you this as a Baptist pastor and someone who fought the last successful marriage amendment. There has not been a single piece of legislation that passed committee, much less the floor of either house, since Obergefell addressing judicial supremacy, and it's only gotten worse since then. Not a single bill addressing religious liberty and all the problems we have and all the problems North Carolina had when a – when a congressionally created, not constitutionally created, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals could mandate, legislate immorality from the bench. 
I am I am 33 years old. I'm a lot younger than you. And I feel like I'm the last Jesse Helms conservative standing. What is going on here? <laughs> and I know there's a lot there. Hey, hey listen, you're, 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 you're singing to the choir here, buddy. I'm preaching to the choir. I... I honestly understand exactly what you're saying, and and it's not going to change until we find some like-minded people. One of the questions I would get out on the campaign trail, uh, even in the midst of folks that were uh, sympathetic to the causes I was standing on, you get the throwback sometimes that, well, what difference will it make if we just elect you? I mean, you're, you're just one person and you're going into the swamp. And I said, but, you know, that's the whole key that we've got to begin to understand that it, it, we can't just stop with it being one person. And as much as I want to be there and represent the Ninth District of North Carolina and, and have that 30,000 foot view of what's good and best for America, at the same time, Daniel, we've got to get serious about finding and recruiting like-minded individuals to run for office that are willing to step into this, that will have the courage, that will have the consistency, and that do have the character to be able to, to stand and, and be counted at the appropriate time. And so I do think that we've got, it, it really comes down to the sheer numbers. I mean, Heaven forbid it was Obama that gave us probably the most pertinent line uh, after his election when he looked in the midst of the discussion of health care and he looked at John McCain and he said, elections matter. Well, that seemed to be an obvious statement that has sort of uh, been lost on us at times <laughs> that elections do matter. And, and so many are tossing in the towel. And I think we cannot do that. We And I, I told somebody that, that our victory in this primary, if it is anything, I want it to be to true conservatives and evangelicals that, hey, this was a win. We can still win. And, and we've got to be willing to be engaged because I'm not the only one out here that is, is fortunate enough to be able to pull this off. I, I think there are others that are out there. We've just got to be a part of awakening um, that segment of our society that is, is just sort of become um, apathetic to the point of, of surrender. And we cannot surrender. Because I'm, I'm seeing the left win 50-year culture battles overnight without firing a shot. I mean, things that used to elicit a united reaction on our side. And it, when I say our side, I don't even mean the Republican Party. You know what I'm talking about. Right. I'm talking oh, about, know. you know, uh, Baptist organizations, other evangelical organizations. I mean, it, it just it's not it, – it, it, the, the stuff that they are doing – um, and you see this from the North Carolina legislature. Pick the few good things that Republican legislatures have done. The courts are are an, out of control. Um, and you know, you know, look, Trump's doing what he can with the nominees he gets. But you know this from the Fourth Circuit that is lost for forever. Um, the 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 vacancies aren't there. All the young ones are are the wackos, and and even the, you know a handful of the good ones are now retiring. Um, you know, this is a big problem, and I'm not seeing anything serve as the impetus. For you know, to push my judicial reform agenda, um, stripping right. the courts of jurisdiction, I, I can't imagine that they're not even pushing this. Um, you know, the, the the lower courts will basically have ten insane cases. The Supreme Court refuses to even address them. One maybe they'll overturn, and we'll say, "Oh, that's a great victory." But none of this sh- stuff should even be in the courts. 
And like I said, I'm not seeing it. And and I guess what I want to maybe approach this on a theological level a little bit, um, you know, if, if I want to do acts of charity and I say I'm going to go somewhere on I-95 in the East Coast and get out of my car in the middle of traffic and start handing out food, is that compassionate? Um <laughs> Well, you say, well, I mean, the amount of people are going to get killed <laughs> by, by you doing that. And the, the, the car wreck is, is uh, I mean, that's pretty cruel. Don't do that. Um, we used to understand those type of values. We used to understand net, that, that we cannot do pure good in this world. Only God can, but we have to do what's just. Nothing's 100 zero. You know, even bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, well, maybe they have, you know, they say, well, we disseminate porn in America. Well, it's true. Um, but does it mean that we shouldn't kill them? <laughs> no. Um, you know, there's always another side to something. So when it comes to immigration, they focus people's attention in a vacuum to a relatively small population of people that are coming over to make a better life for themselves and all of no fault of their own. But they fail to say it's certainly of no fault of the American taxpayers and communities suffering from all the young recruits to MS-13 and the fiscal cost. Um but they don't look at the 325 million Americans suffering from it. They don't look at the 29,000 Mexicans who die from the environment and the atmosphere like Judge Andrew Hannon said that we create by having this border, particularly with DACA. Not, not that, oh, I'm against amnesty, but DACA, oh, that's really – that you know all these phony religious groups are pushing that. Um, no, that is the linchpin of the drug crisis, and we have a whole series on, you know, on conservative review why that has driven that circa 2013 with the UACs, why we have the MS-13 explosion and the uh, Suffolk County prosecutor uh, or uh, police commissioner said at Trump's roundtable that all the entirety of the Long Island MS-13 crisis, I know you got that in North Carolina, that came from the UACs and that came from DACA. Um, and, you know, th- there's just this cra- – I, I mean, I, I live in s- suburban Baltimore and – you know, it would be the equivalent of me saying during the Freddie Gray riots, you know, I feel bad for what's going on downtown. I'm going to go downtown and bring some people in. I have the responsibility first and foremost to my household. If you're an elected representative, this is deeply rooted in the social compact. You don't represent foreign nationals. If you want to open up a missionary in Guatemala, knock yourself out. You represent the American people. We all seem to understand that, but I am bothered by the fact that a lot of evangelical groups and even social conservative groups, and you know, it's certainly Catholic groups and Jewish groups as well, are somehow buying into this, that somehow the Soros agenda is gospel. Yeah, that's a that's a problem. I, I listen. I think we've got to get to a point where we understand law and order. That that is first and foremost at the foundation of who we are as a nation. And if we don't preserve the very bedrock and the very foundation of who we are as a nation, then all of the good that we can do and have done, quite frankly, throughout our history as a country will be lost. And, and people don't understand when you destroy the foundation of anything, then the quality and the impact that you're going to have in the future is devastated. And, and you lose that ability. And that, that is the short-sightedness to me of, of what we're seeing in the culture all under the, the terminology of quote-unquote compassion that, that loses um, and causes us to lose who we are as a country. Uh, that, that, to me, is the big issue. 
You know, what's very tied into this is the courts. Um, the left has realized that they, they cannot win legislatively in most cases. And they are accomplishing everything in the courts. Now, I remember, you know, and, and you lived this 80s, 90s, a little earlier, there was a robust social conservative movement that was tied into the legal conservative movement that at every turn warned and fought back against judicial supremacy. And as early as Reagan, they were considering jurisdiction stripping when the courts were 1% as bad as they are today. The courts in my lifetime, forget it, scrap that, in my professional career time, just that duration over the last decade, they have gotten so insane beyond anything Robert Bork or Scalia or Ed Meese back in the day even talked about. Um, let's talk about North Carolina. North Carolina has sure. been denuded of its powers to draw its districts, its state districts, its federal districts, its Wade County school board districts, districts that were upheld by the state courts, pre-cleared by the DOJ, um, by Obama's DOJ, Holder's DOJ. The courts come in there, rip them apart time and again. Um, you cannot define a, a, a Y and X chromosomes. You have to have females in male bathrooms, males in female bathrooms. They've uh, um, blocked you from from immigration enforcement. I'm I'm, I'm forgetting a whole a whole list of what what I well, talked about. Well, they blocked with. our voter ID law. Oh, the bingo! Show an ID to vote. Voter ID. I, I had I, I it ripped me inside. I had an activist in North Carolina that tweeted me that at the time or DM'd me at the time said, Daniel, this is what we fought so hard for, and now a, a stupid lower court could just. I mean. To me, every one of these rulings, I am the only one in the country writing about the extent of lower court tyranny that the Supreme Court is not putting in check. And in fact, you know, everyone's saying we have a conservative Supreme Court. It's unbelievable, though. Yeah, the Obergefell uh, uh, Hellerstadt Court is conservative. Um, but again, my conservative legal colleagues are all obsessed with that. Um, they think that to, to me, this each one of them should be like turning up the heat in the frog in the boiling water. That we we should jump and say this is it. We are doing judicial reform. Um, again, you know, mm -hmm. I want to just have this conversationally. I, I could only urge you. I, I need a player, someone who's going to take up the mantle of judicial reform, because otherwise, North Carolina is meaningless. It, it, the state, you know. Let, let me just end with this: In 1788, North Carolina was reluctant to join the Union, as you all well know. They joined very late. It wasn't until um, Washington was already inaugurated. And, and the main concern was they, they were scared that the federal government, the newly created feds, would destroy their state. And their reluctance right. to join the union actually helped ensure that Congress immediately passed the Bill of Rights, which you know, contained the Tenth Amendment, granting the states the you know, powers over stuff not enumerated um, to the federal powers. So it wasn't until 1799 they met again. First, I think, it was in Greensboro. They met again in Fayetteville, and then they agreed to join the union – only after James Erdell, the big North Carolina founder, promised that the president would have, quote, no power of legislation and that their federal representatives would stand for the state. He said, well, who do you think the federal government is? It's of people of North Carolina. How tragic that now the weakest branch of government, the judiciary, has been granted legislative power over the state. And I could tell you I have a couple of friends in that delegation, but there's a lot of problems, especially on the Senate side. Where 
are the North Carolinians on the federal level speaking out about the judicial supremacy, introducing judicial reform, and will you commit to this audience that you'll introduce such legislation? Absolutely. I mean, there's no question that that one of the tragedies that we face in this generation uh, is the title of a book, actually, that I've got, When Judges Become Kings. And that's exactly what we're seeing, which is a series of essays that have been put together. And, and, you know, that's where we are today, where our judiciary, uh, basically, you, you mentioned the Obergefell decision, where five lawyers in robes uh, somehow set the, the law, creating even to some of the uh, Scalia and even John Roberts, stating that, that law was created out of whole cloth in that decision and others that they've done. So, uh, yes, there's got to be some kind of reform and I am more than happy to be an individual that is is willing to uh, champion that cause. No, and I appreciate that. And believe me, I'll I'll be uh, emailing you my my article on ten ten reform ideas. I uh, had to fight back against the courts because I'm just feeling that nothing matters. Um, the stuff that we fought about for fifty years, they're they they are codifying. Um, certainly on immigration, you're seeing this. There was um you know what's called the plenary power doctrine that you know. Even at the bowels of the Warren era, where they were creating all sorts of nonsensical rights for Americans, the plenary power doctrine survived that you know the, there are no constitutional rights to come here, to remain here as a foreign national. It is exclusively up to the political branches of government uh, to deport you at whim if you're not a citizen for any reason. The courts cannot get involved. And now that it has been uprooted in a matter of four, you know, 12 to 24 months – um, no one's doing anything about it. Louis Gormert has a bill, H.R. 5648, that would strip the lower courts of any power to adjudicate cases that raise issues of immigration, naturalization, um, or related to any matter or case involving a claimed right to enter or remain in the United States. I find it amazing how these social conservative groups had time to, do, to tell the president they want prison reform, which is nothing but retroactive jailbreak that people like Jesse Helms fought against for, for decades – um, and that somehow that that's biblical values, but I I'm literally I cannot find a single social conservative group championing my agenda of stripping the courts of jurisdiction over religious liberty cases, marriage, definition of sexuality. By the way, I don't know if you know this. No, none other than Ron Paul had that bill last decade. <laughs> um, you know, you wouldn't think it, but that's that's how quickly we've changed. Um, wow, I, I'm just. I'm stupefied. I mean, what's funny is so so they're so concerned about you know prisoners' rights. Evidently, a lot of these social conservative groups. The day after this bill passed that I talked about at the beginning of the show, a federal magistrate from Missouri said that there's an unalienable right codified in the Eighth Amendment um, that it's uh, a cruel and unusual punishment not to offer hormone therapy. And facial hair removal in the prisons. Now, Missouri was even doing it for those that already had it going in, but they, I guess they just weren't doing it for those that newly uh, got, got started on that. Um, and they said that violates the Eighth Amendment. And nobody bats an eyelash. And I'm just telling you, this goes on every day, and they're creating a torrent of jurisprudential velocity that is irreversible. And I feel like nothing you do legislatively will matter until this is addressed. Well, I would be very, very excited and anxious to for you to email me uh, the article that you referenced with the uh, 10 reforms, because I would love to see those. 
I, I do agree to your point that was well taken. Uh, in fact, I think it was Harry Reid's legacy. Uh, it was over the Fourth Circuit, if I remember correctly, that uh, he used the quote-unquote nuclear option uh, in order to ram the uh, approval through for the judges that would sit on the Fourth Circuit. And you're exactly right that where we used to for decades uh, were so concerned and up in arms about the Ninth Circuit on the West Coast, and here we are in North Carolina and our neighbors dealing with the Fourth Circuit, which has demonstrated nothing but a, a liberal bent from day one. Um, and, and we're fighting that battle every day. And, and like you said, elections are important, and they are making it that you now cannot win elections because they're codifying every Democrat method, procedure, and timing of voting. And I use that term because that's Article 1, Section 4. was given over to the states. Um, not the federal judiciary uh, under extraordinary circumstances. Hamilton said Congress could step in, not the courts. And you know whether it's photo ID law, I know you had a ballot harvesting law that was struck down that some believe made the difference. Those ballots that were harvested pursuant to law are unlawful. And um, you know, Governor, former Governor McCrory, really possibly could have won without that. And the courts, I mean, you know, you saw it very painfully in North Carolina. Um, you know, I'm curious to get your idea on this again. I, and, you know, I don't mean to beat up on social conservative groups today, but maybe I do because I, I think what I'm so excited about your candidacy is I think we, we have someone who's actually dealt with this. Do you think it's time for a federal civil rights style legislation on religious liberty, meaning that even states and, and we're 10th Amendment people? But states have, could do a lot of things. They cannot go after unalienable rights. Now, there's very few unalienable rights. They're negative rights, not legal positivism. But that I have the right locomotion, as Clarence Thomas said in his dissent in Obergefell, I have the right with my private property to abide by my conscience that no state or federal official can force an individual to use his private property or business and contrary to his conscience, would you be open to exploring such leg- legislation? I would be open to exploring that. I mean, that's First Amendment. Uh, and I think our folks uh, have to understand that, that those freedoms are so critical. So, yeah, I, would, I have no problem exploring that. Because my, my concern is that a lot of our colleagues are putting all their faith, ironically, and this is funny, in Anthony Kennedy in the Master Cakes case. And my feeling is even if ultimately he sides with us, it's going to be very narrow that, you know, A, A the, these people in Colorado were set up, the, the circumstances were very dubious also, that the, the and, and the lawyers weren't even arguing our point. It was very narrow that basically just the artistic design of a cake meaning as opposed to a florist or a photographer. It's the actual work you don't have to do, but fundamentally the rainbow jihad that we're seeing in 90% of other cases that you must service their agenda, you must obey, that that ironically what they always accused people like you of of um, you know, violating the establishment clause, you know, coercing religion, which we never do. We're never, we don't coerce anyone. They're the ones creating a national religion of rainbow, um, which is, you know, what Madison said truly is the violation of the establishment clause to coerce someone with the force of law to subvert their consciousness. 
that is sure. my concern, and I don't see anyone pushing back, and there's no legislation. Well, I, I think you're exactly right, and that, that would definitely be worth exploring. Now, you know, again, just, just kind of you know, free advice here. I mean, you know none of this will pass committee. You know you're not going to get a good committee assignment. Even if you did, it wouldn't pass committee. It's not going to pass the floor. To me, the blessing of one of the few blessings of this culture is social media, which is a mixed blessing. But the fact that any person – you're not just a vote. More importantly, you're a voice. You could take that platform and blow up an issue, get to the president on this and say this needs to be addressed, work outside the system. Um, do you have any plan to kind of harness that outside game to, to raise, you know, ra- raise attention to this? Because I'm just telling you. It's not going to come from the inside. Uh, you know, Steve King has the, the, the pro-life groups are opposing his heartbeat bill. I mean, that's how bad it is in Washington. Oh, I understand. Um, yeah, it, I understand. It is, it, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you don't have a Republican Party committing p- political adultery for, for 30 years if you have a conservative movement that's not, let's just say, somehow has a love-hate relationship with it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I do. I, I do think that um, we do have an opportunity because we are a voice. And and I think this is an opportunity to to speak truth um, in, in a big way. And I do think to the uniqueness of where we even started our conversation today in being able to pull off this primary win and now go into a general election um, and, and bring home a win. Uh, for conservatives. And I, I think that it's going to give us a voice and an opportunity to be able to say, hey, this is where this is where we stand. And I listen, as a pastor, you know, I've been frustrated to see that the Congress has not even moved on on the Johnson Amendment and in so many ways. And yet the president himself has had to step in through executive order to do certain things. And, uh, you know, I, I was one of those those pastors that uh along with the Alliance Defending Freedom, was willing to stand up uh, on Pulpit Freedom Sunday and, and share with my people uh, my positions and, and what I was doing. Certainly not in the name of the church, but, but as, as an individual, as a tax-paying citizen who happened to be a pastor, and, um, and we've got to protect those freedoms, no question about it. And, and I think that, that we, we need Congress that is a, a Congress that is going to stand up for those principles and I definitely intend to be that voice there. And, and that's the thing. I will tell you, you know, and I'll admit this right up front. I am pleasantly surprised about the president. I was very concerned, considering his background, um, you know, being in that whole Manhattan crowd, that you know, particularly with the Rainbow Jihad, he would totally not be interested in our agenda. And I'm telling you, he has shown more interest than these long-standing, you know religious conservative groups in Washington, but they're not, you know, helping and they're not, you know, calling those plays. Hey, Mr. President, let's demand this on the defense bill. Let's demand this on the budget bill. Let's, like you said, the Johnson Amendment, you know, they stripped it out of the tax bill. It was going to be in the tax bill and they stripped it out in the Senate. Um, You know, we don't have people putting this stuff on his plate. He's not going to know about it more than more than we do. And uh, and that's the thing. We need more outside voices. So I know I've taken a lot of your time yapping away. What other priorities do you have, you know, headed in? And, you know, what are you kind of really pushing on the campaign trail until November? 
Well, obviously, what we're really pushing is is really taking some of these points of the president's agenda that, that he has laid out uh, that I think are critical. I, I think the building of the wall, I think securing our borders without question, that, that is not only a national security issue for our country, it's an economic issue for our country, um, a law and order issue. It, it, it's all of the above. And I think that has got to be a major piece. And then for me, and I've continued to pound this on the campaign trail, is we have got to control and cut spending in this country. Um, $21 trillion of national debt is not going to go away without a serious commitment to do what's going to be necessary. And, you know, uh, the tax cuts, uh, they were a great thing. Um, I would have voted for the tax cut bill, quite frankly. I think it's important to stimulate the economy. But we've never seen what a tax cut of that magnitude actually does when you've got a $21 trillion national debt throwing cold water on it. So, I, you know, the whole point of the tax cut was to come back early in 2018 and pass spending cuts. And that never happened. Instead, we ended up with a $1.3 trillion spending bill that um, was just, just out of control. So that is a major priority for mine, of mine. And uh, I'm going to continue to beat that drum, not only on the campaign trail, but, but right there in Washington as well. Yeah, it's funny. You'll have a farm bill, a $969 billion farm bill waiting for you that, um, again, there were just a few hundred, few dozen who were willing to oppose it. And, and even a lot of those, it was just a it was a strategic play with the whole discharge petition on immigration. A lot of them didn't even oppose it on the merits. So, yeah, I mean, you know this, Mark. I'm sure you've heard this throughout your career. Remember all those people that said, Enough of the social issues. I'm a fiscal conservative. And then, you right. know, it's funny. None of these groups are left. I'm like the last man standing on the farm bill in Obamacare on free market health care. It's interesting how, you know, when you have a small G God, um, you don't exactly have a small G government, do you? Exactly. Exactly. You better believe it. So the government is looking to fill that vacuum, I promise you. You know, I'd be I'd be remiss not to mention this. You know, again, I, like you could tell I I, I like I like North Carolina a lot. I don't know what it is. Um, I've just grown close with a lot of activists there. Um, like the lieutenant governor, I've been following it a lot. Mm. I, you know, speaking out when they were under assault and no one was standing up for North Carolina. You know, I just want to again right. just to drive home the point on the border and 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 this sympathy. I, I really want to get to the co- core of the of of dreamers and the misnomer of what it is and how you know. A, a lot of them are MS-13 people. A lot of them are problematic youth from El Salvador, and even the ones that aren't, every single one has to pay a drug cartel to get over, and that has tripled the size of the poppy fields from 2013 to 2016, which is why, according to DEA, which is why we have the drug crisis. Um, the amount of people killed by it, you know, this was in February, um, early February on a Sunday night in Winston-Salem, North North Carolina, an illegal alien from El Salvador was driving while intoxicated without a driver's license, crashed into an ambulance that was carrying an American toddler to a trauma center with the mother in the car. Um, Mm -hmm. And then he tried to flee with an accomplice, and he was caught. And I believe he was let go by a sanctuary city. And, you know, and again... This is not just the source morality. This is 
you know what I mean. Groups under the umbrella yeah. of the Southern Baptist Convention are, are promoting this type of thought. And, you know, the, the woman was, was um, the mother, all, all I know is the name released was Lindsay Ann Oaks. She, she lived on the Virginia side of the border. She was injured in the crash. And I was saying to myself, who's going to be the voice for people like that? I mean, you have the weight of the universe lobbying for i mean the these um illegal aliens i mean they have the weight as jeff sessions always said the masters of the universe i mean every lobby every industry every cultural institution um everyone's for all the all people are in prison for too long who is standing for the victims of crime and illegal aliens do you are you committed to being a voice for those people oh absolutely i mean again i that's why we're fighting so hard to uh, to pass the uh, the very key pillars that I think uh, are going to help bring this under control. I mean, to to secure the border first and foremost, and to end the chain migration, and and to do away with this visa lottery program that just lets lets folks in. I mean, so those are key principles that have have got to be a part of any kind of immigration reform, and and the system has got to be. Um, it's got to be dealt with. And, and so, yes, without question, I will be that consistent voice. You know, it's cute. The, the same courts that are saying states are garbage, states don't exist, right? I mean, they, they cannot set their own terms of election. Oh, that's another thing I've forgotten. In North Carolina, you have to have five weeks of early voting. Not just you have to have it. It's in the Constitution. They have to have a certain amount of weeks to hire county clerks to come in on you know, a Sunday, a month before an election day. Um, you cannot define marriage. You cannot define sexuality. You cannot define X and Y and chromosomes. But by golly – States have the right to defy federal immigration law, the one area that is manifestly under federal control. I mean, talk about judicial Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, I know. It's it's unbelievable. Anyway, thank, thanks for your generous time. Good luck with everything, and, and, and God bless. And, and, and we're going to need you to remain strong and in constant contact with, with patriots and the people that help you get elected. Never lose sight of that. Well, we will not, Daniel. And any anything that your folks listening today can do to help us, they can go to our website at markharrisforcongress.com and, um, and check it out. Check out our issues page. Uh, if they want to help us, there's a way that it, it guides them through that as well. Uh, we've got a fight in November. We've got to get through this. We've been targeted. The left's going to do everything to uh, keep me out of Washington. And uh, we're we're just trying to unite solid conservatives that believe in limited government, uh, believe in shrinking the size of government, and uh, and stand on the principles of the Constitution. And we can use the help of all those patriots to uh, to help us get there. Well, there you go, folks. Mark Harris for Congress.com will put in show notes. Um, thank you for joining us. And that was indeed Mark Harris is running for North Carolina's 9th Congressional District. It is already a general election. Um, we will have a lot more on a lot of the issues we mentioned, at least obliquely here. But um, either tomorrow or next week, I'm telling you, make conservative review your one-stop shop. Support our sponsors as well. God bless you all. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 